This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. So before we receive the offering, I just wanted to remind everybody, some of you were not here last week, that uh, this season of Lent, our Lenten journey is focusing on sacred endings. We're focusing using the line from T.S. Eliot's famous, famous poet, or famous poem, Four Quartets, Eliot, at the end of that poem, the fourth stanza said, in my end is my beginning. So we're following Christ along the way toward the resurrection, most certainly, but we're also following Christ along the way, watching how he stewarded the many endings of his life, the many little and sub-deaths that life offers us. And so, in that, today we're talking about relationships, because one of the little deaths, and it really doesn't feel that little when it happens, but one of the deaths short of biological death, one of the deaths that we face that is most painful is the end of relationships, the loss of significant relationships, people who are dear to us. Sometimes that does come through biological death, sometimes that comes through divorce, sometimes that comes through the close of friendships, sometimes it comes as harsh as betrayal. For whatever reason, and there are many, we lose relationships in this life, human relationships. Well, to that end, we're going to speak today. My daughter, Nina, just a few weeks ago, she's sitting over here because she wants to hear the song, because a few weeks ago she handed me my phone, Nancy and I and Nina were out driving around, she handed me my phone and she had pulled up on the phone a, a new song a song that was a collaboration of a group called A Great Big World and Christina Aguilera. And the song was called Say Something. And when I heard it, um, Nina and I both, and Nancy was there, we really relished the depth and the poignancy of it. And I just kind of filed it away, and I've heard it, and it's one of those songs that gets in your head. But this week, when we were talking about the series, Melissa said this would be a perfect song in a perfect place. So as we receive our tithe and offering, she and Ben are going to sing. And think about this. Open your hearts and let's reflect. Let's pray now for the offering. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to give, and we do thank you for that. We're grateful for a good church. Thank you, Lord, for local communities of faith all over this town. We pray blessings on all those around us. We pray that their needs will be met as ours are, that we might be able to do the work of the kingdom in this city. May Middle Tennessee, may this particular area be blessed today by Grace Point. May it be blessed this week by Grace Point. Fill our needs, Lord, that we might do your work. We pray these things in Christ's name. God's people said amen. God bless you while you give. Sorry that I couldn't get to you 
Eliot says, what we call the beginning, what we call the beginning is often the end. Eliot goes on to say, and to make an end, to make an end, and we do make ends. To make an end is to make a beginning. Because, he says, the end is where we start from. So, perhaps my famous line in uh, the four quartets, we shall not cease from exploration. We can't help ourselves. We will keep on exploring geography and land. We will keep on exploring hearts. The juxtaposition of Melissa and Ben in that song was much like the video. Him faced painfully and differently forward, her facing him, indifference and pleading mixed, not just in two lives, but in two hearts. We shall not, in spite of the pain of it all, cease from exploration. And the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. In my end, Eliot said, is my beginning. Jesus talked about ends that were pregnant, ripe with beginning. When he said, except a grain of wheat, listen to him, except a grain of wheat, except a seed from the wheat plant, except that grain of wheat fall into the ground and except it die, it'll abide alone. But, Jesus said, if the grain of wheat, if that kernel of wheat, if it falls on the ground and dies, it'll bear much fruit. In the death of the seed is the birth of much fruit. Season of Lent is that time in the Christian church when we focus especially, particularly on those parts of the gospel that Paul spoke to in 1 Corinthians 15 when he explicitly stated that the gospel of Jesus is that he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. The good news of God is not only a resurrection, the good news of God is also a death. And in that, Paul is saying this is the gospel. The gospel is about ultimate solidarity. God's ultimate union with humankind. Christ's death was good news. How can a death be good news? How can the death of God be good news? How can the crucifixion, the torturous crucifixion of God be good news? Emmanuel, God with us. Not God with us simply in terms of spatial proximity, but God in it with us. God with us so deeply that he robes himself in flesh. Philippians 2 said he poured out right and privilege. He couldn't pour out his divinity. He couldn't cease to be what he was, so he poured out the rights and privileges of divinity, if you're wondering. He poured those things out, humbling himself, even to the death of the cross. The good news is that God is with us. God is not observing us. God is not the laboratory scientist who's got the rats in the maze and he's watching and diagramming the process. No, he is with us. That's why perhaps one of my five most important scriptures theologically if I were going to find five or six linchpins in the whole of Scripture, Hebrews 2.17 would be one of them. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. He had to become one of us. Who tells God God has to do anything? God does. By virtue, not of human demands, by virtue, not of anyone strong-arming him, but the only possible, the only realistic have-to in God's heart is a have-to born of his own morality, a have-to born of his own ethic. In Hebrews 2.17, he said he had to be one of us. 
And somewhere from a grave, Job screams out, yes, he did. Because 2,000 years before, a man who had lost everything stood and cried, oh, that God were a man that he might know. Because, verse 14 said, because his children are flesh and blood. You want to understand the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate defense of Christianity? Here it is. It's the woundedness of God. Who couldn't imagine a God who was a miracle worker? Who couldn't imagine a God that could defy the laws of physics, thermodynamics, and nature? Who couldn't imagine a God big enough to create the universe, I suppose big enough to manipulate it? But who would have imagined a God suspended with a mix of tears and mucus and blood and sweat caked on his face? Who could imagine the God who separated the waters above from the waters beneath through parched, dry lips, whispering, I'm thirsty, and being offered bitter gall to drink? Because God's children are flesh and blood, he had to be made flesh and blood. He had to become one of us, listen, in order that he might deliver us who all of our lives are afraid of dying. Ah, oh, there's the gospel. He had to become one of us the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection, especially his death as we venture through this Lenten season. The good news of his death is that he would not let us deal with this, endure this alone. And the reality is we weren't enduring it alone, but we thought we were enduring it alone, so he unveiled, he revealed his love by robing himself in flesh, and Jesus said, you be sure of this, this is not a fact-finding mission for God. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You have seen now what God has always been doing in relationship with humanity, but now you can see it. And the good news of his death was that he came in flesh that he might deliver us who all of our lives are afraid of dying, living in fear of dying, living in fear of death. Death is much larger than biological cessation. If you want to understand the biblical concept of death, you've got to go beyond this idea of hearts and brains and organs like kidneys and livers ceasing to function. Death is larger than the ceasing of organic function. Death, biblically, the idea of death, this enemy that God is battling, the idea of death is the idea of endings, the idea of terminal losses. And what we know about death is that, not only biblically, but in our own lives empirically, is that death manifests itself in multiple forms. And all of these forms that death manifests itself within, they all share a common stark denominator. And that stark denominator is that something has ceased to be. Something that you hold dear. Something that you cherish. Death, wherever it is, whether it's biological, emotional, circumstantial, relational, death is when something that is dear to you has run its course and no longer exists. It's died. And it's very clear that the writer of Hebrews said that's an unavoidable part of this world that we're in. East of Eden, death is unavoidable in all of its many forms. And so the writer of Hebrews did not say that Christ came to deliver us from dying first, but he came, J.D., to deliver us from the fear of dying. He didn't come to us with promises that our loved ones would never slip into eternity. He didn't come to us with promises that our lives would never wind their way through divorce courts and betrayals. But the writer of Hebrews said, that the good news of Jesus is that he will deliver you from the fear of that dying. He will deliver you from that paralyzing sense 
of I can't lose this or my life will be over. And he does this by showing us in his own life that death is not an ultimate end. He does this by showing us in so many ways, not only the cross, but he does this by showing us that death is an end, but it is not the final end. That death is an admixture of many small ends, and those ends can be faced. They can be faced as a part of this world and a part of this life. Jesus came to show us that death is a transition. I stood at, over at Bobby and Lucy Pinson's house the other day, just a few nights ago, and John Weldon, Lucy's dad, is passing into the world beyond, and hospice is there, and that 185-pound frame that's been racked by Alzheimer's, and now in recent months, lots of struggle. I stood there in that little room, and I have been in many rooms like that where it felt like life was being swallowed up by death. But not this day. 85 years of life, 85 years of love. Lucy, our friend Lucy, her mama who also comes to this church, and you'll see her, she's a little white-headed lady always sitting down front with the Pentecostalism shining through. She's the one that walks up to me after every good sermon, and she says, oh, Brother Stan, she says. She says, when you was preaching, she said, it just filled up my bosom. <laughs> Not many people can comfortably say that my preaching filled up their bosom, but Lucy can. And I walked in that room, Paul said, in these bodies we groan, we sigh, we carry burdens, longing for mortality to be swallowed up by life. I've been in those rooms where life was being swallowed up by mortality. I've been in those cold, hopeless feeling rooms but the Lenten season reminds us ultimately life is bigger than death and ultimately our longing is correct that one of these days mortality, impermanence, transience, temporality, finiteness, death, subject to death, one of these days mortality is going to be swallowed up by life. And there are old saints, there are those moments when you stand in a room like I stood in the other night and you feel a little bit of the vouchsafing of that come now. Bob, you feel a little bit of glory on this side. I walked in and little Cash crawled up in bed beside his grandpa. He's been walking through the whole thing, crawls up in bed beside his grandpa, wraps himself around his grandpa's head and begins to run his fingers through that white hair. And I stood there and somewhere between weeping and laughing, I threw up my hands and I began to quote 2 Corinthians 4. In these bodies we earnestly groan, desiring to be clothed upon with that which is from above, knowing that if our earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with that which is from above, knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And about that time from the corner of the room, old Sister Lucy, see, you know you're in the South when there's a Lucy Senior and a Lucy Junior. Old Sister Lucy said, glory! And I continued to quote, for we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal in the heavens. And we reckon that our present sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say to all of these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And in that room, I couldn't stop quoting scripture. In that room, and Lucy says, Daddy just went to heaven. 
Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? And now, Paul said, mortality is swallowed up by life. Death is only a step. And somewhere John Weldon is minus Alzheimer's. Somewhere he's seeing the Lord. And Graham, by the time he gets good and turned around, we'll all be coming. And he's with your daughter and your brothers and your sisters and your sister. He's there where all things are made clear. Death and our faith is only a step. It's a threshold to a new place, a new reality. And one of the most difficult sub-deaths that we experience in this world, one of the most difficult little deaths, and it seems wrong to call them little deaths, but one of the most difficult deaths known to us in this world, Charlie, is the death of relationships. The extreme of losing our loved ones to physical death, a relationship comes to an end and we enter into that time where now Miss Lucy, Lucy Jr., our friend, she'll have to figure out what it's like to be in a world without a dad. That's a different world and many of you have faced that world. Disorientation, disidentification, the loss of loved ones. And as much as the loss of an 85-year-old husband is painful, I've been with some of you if you've lost your children. I've watched big men slide down walls, unable to breathe. The loss of human relationship is a tough one. Sometimes it doesn't come through biological cessation. Sometimes it comes through divorce. Sometimes it comes through the end of a friendship. Sometimes it comes through estrangement from family members. There are some of you right now down somewhere in the substrata of your life is a nagging, gnawing pain because it's been a friend of mine, good friend of mine, showed me a picture Friday and said, this is the granddaughter I've never seen. Estrangement from parents, from children, from siblings. Oh, sweet Jesus, as we journey toward a cross, teach us your way about how to end sacredly with grace, dignity, and mercy, and your love. Teach us how within your presence to to walk through the Judases in our own life, and God forbid that we've been a Judas, but surely we're not only the hurt ones, we are also the herders. This is not just the crowd assembled who needs to forgive, we are also the ones need forgiven. But on your Lenten journey, sweet Lord, teach us what to do with these people that you've poured your whole life into, and when it comes down to it, you find out you're worth a bag of silver to them. Judas is that spirit that we all have faced that commoditizes us and puts a price on us and we find that all those years that we thought we were being loved, we were actually being used. What do you do, Lenten Christ, on your way to your cross with the Judases in your life? How do you dispatch them? How do you deal with them? And he sets his face toward Jerusalem and gathers with his twelve his 12 and he gets down at the feet of his betrayer and pours mercy on those dirty feet and then if that were not enough he establishes the Eucharist and perhaps the most meaningful part of the Eucharist to me is that Christ built no fences around that table but he put a piece of bread and a cup of wine, and he placed it into the hands of a betrayer. And Everett, he looked at that man, not a friend like us, and he called him friend and said, do what you have to do, but not before you take my body and blood into your belly. 
Sweet Christ on the Lenten journey teaches how to gather those around you like disciples, preparing them, loving them. Teach us how in the midst of the largeness of life that we don't miss the smallness for perhaps in the smallness actually is the largeness. And on his cross, redeeming the world in the midst of profound statements like, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive, and they know not what they do. It is finished in the midst of all of those profound statements, interspersed with them as the most humane and the human. He whispers, Antonio, man, behold your mother. Because he wasn't so busy being God that he forgot that he was also a son. And in a world with no social security, the geriatric care of parents depended upon sons who made lives for themselves. And hanging on a cross, he wasn't so big with eternity that he didn't take time to look down and steward this ending of a father, of a mother-son relationship and whisper, John, preach my gospel, yes. Take care of my mama. And history accounts, and if you go there, you'll find history accounts strongly that she lived her life out in Ephesus. And well, she should have, because that's where John went. Teach us about the stewardship of closings. Teach us about how to end well. Sometimes in the closing of relationships, you're the initiator. Sometime you initiate the shutting down, the way closing in a relationship through the setting of your own boundaries. And none of us are really good at this. People like us who love and are driven by Christ to love, it's within the human spirit. We are not good at shutting down relationships, especially those that are most meaningful to us. But finally, after incurring sufficient damage, we find ourselves in the office of a pastor or a brother or a counselor or a spiritual director and we begin the very painful process of building boundaries into our life. Knowing that we have to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and if we do not love ourselves well, we have nothing to give our neighbor. And after years, sometimes decades of abuse, people finally come to that courageous place of building boundaries in their life. And Mike saying, this is where I will have to live and I hope you will live here with me. And sometimes the response is redemptive and sometimes the response after all of that work is who do you think you are? And the relationship that we so desperately wanted to save, the relationship that has so desperately hurt us because of boundaries that God calls us to set in our own heart and life, the relationships, the relationships end up being so radically changed that at some level they can only be described as having died. Sometimes we're not the initiator. Sometimes we are the recipient of someone else's decisions or actions. Sometimes we are on the other end of that, and perhaps that's even harder to be outside the boundaries of another person's life. And sometimes it's as harsh as something that we would call betrayal. We're the recipient of their choice, their action, for us not to be in their life anymore. I remember well that sense of scrambling like a fool, trying to control and submitting myself to control, not of the other person, but of my own immaturity, my own misguidedness. But I remember those days finally realizing that there was nothing left to control and that death had come. The sound of the gavel still rings in my ears. In either case, whether it's chosen or unchosen, the ending is an unwanted reality. The ending is something you never dreamed about, something you never hoped for, something you never planned for, something perhaps you never even imagined. 
friends since almost birth and now no contact. You bore them in your own belly and yet it's been years since you've heard from them. They taught you how to walk. They taught you how to eat. You grew up your whole life playing baseball and football and and now those that are dearest to you are gone. And the ending you face is an unwanted reality that includes the loss of something, that includes the loss of someone that you had valued. Oh, shoot, that you still value so deeply that you can't breathe when you think about it so deeply, and now they're gone. The wisdom of Scripture speaks to this. It speaks to it profoundly. And a couple of things that I just want to show you in Scripture. The first is Romans, the 12th chapter in the 18th verse. Look at it. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, digest this for a minute. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, what is the it? The it obviously is living at peace. And forget about everyone and just think about that one now. The painful exercise. If it, living at peace with them, is possible. If, another two-letter word, profound in this, in this scripture, if... If it is possible, which means it's not a foregone conclusion that it is. If it is possible, live at peace with that person. If it is possible, which deeply implies it may not be possible, and up front we're stating it, it may not work. The Apostle Paul says, but if it is possible, if there's any possibility left. Listen, as much as depends on you, you cannot control the other person. Bonnie Raitt sang it. Mike, big football player, songwriting Mike. Who was he? Mike what? Mike Reed. Mike Reed wrote it. can't make you love me. I can't make you love me if you don't. You can't make your heart feel something it won't. I remember sitting out at the Bluebird with about 15 people, and I said, where did you get that song, Mike? And he said, I was reading in the paper the other day, and an old homeless guy was lamenting the loss of his love, and he reflected pensively there in the cold, dark night. You know how it is. You can't make them love you if they don't. You can't make their heart feel something it won't. As much as depends on you. As much as depends on me. See, I can't make someone be at peace with me. And if I cannot be at peace with that person which is a tremendous loss. If I finally come to the conclusions, Matthew 18 said, I've gone to the person and, and Jesus said, if you can work it through with them, listen to this. He said, you've gained your brother. You've gained your sister. That's a great text. You've gained something by not giving up on it, by working at it. But as surely as he said, if it turns out and the hearts are restored, you've gained your brother. The reality is, if it doesn't, guess what's happened? You've lost. And a loss of a brother? A loss of a sister? Is a severe loss. But the reality is, if I cannot be at peace with the other person, I at least have to make sure I can be at peace with myself. And the only way that I can be at peace with myself and the peace of absence with them is if I know, Kevin, that I've done everything in my power. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, 
try your best, but at some point, you have to realize that there will be no peace external. And you will not be able to look into their eye, which is the window of their soul, but you still have to be able to look yourself in the eye. And know this, if the other person cannot give you a peaceful relationship with them, don't expect that they can give you a peaceful relationship with yourself. If you could not forge a peaceful relationship with them, don't expect them to give you that key. Don't keep being Lucy, coming back to, or rather Charlie Brown, coming back to Lucy, expecting that she's gonna hold the football this time. You remember that Peanuts comic strip? How many of us, like fools, have kept coming back to that same dry well, just needing them one time? How many of you have I said and heard, in spite of all of your accomplishments, say, I just still need him to say it? Just one time. One time. And Charlie Brown keeps signing up and Charlie Brown keeps soaring through the air and landing on his backside. And at some point, Charlie Brown's gotta figure out Lucy is never gonna hold that football. I'm gonna have to find peace in myself. We have a futile tendency to seek closure and peace from the very people with whom we have a failed relationship. We have a futile tendency of going back again and again and again to that well, needing them desperately to affirm what maybe a million others have affirmed before them, but somehow we need them to say it. 1 Corinthians 7.15 speaks to this issue profoundly. Look at the text. This is not all the Bible says about divorce, and this is a whole lot more than just marital divorce that we're speaking to here principally. But look at this verse. If your husband or wife isn't a follower of the Lord, it was a new situation that was happening in the early church. People were giving their hearts to Jesus and their spouse wasn't. And it set up a very divided, painful home for many. And in this situation, Paul said, if your husband or wife isn't a follower of the Lord and decides to divorce you, then you should agree to it. You are no longer bound to that person. They unbound you perhaps a long time before, but you have bound your heart there. But you are no longer bound to that person. After all, God chose you. And you keep going back to them, trying to find some resolve, and they keep telling you that it's not you, it's them, which you know means it's you. And all the while, God is saying, I've chosen you. In the midst of the pain of rejection, I want you to know I've chosen you. And I want you to live at peace. And this is a peace you're not gonna find in them. This is a peace that they have no capacity to give you. This is a peace that you're gonna find between you and me alone. And I love this idea of God calling us to peace. It's God with decency standing at the boundaries of your life and your decision. And in no way does God rush into something as painful as a failed marriage or relationship and yank you up and pull you out. No, God stands outside, not only of failed marriages, but of failed relationships. Divorce is much bigger than marriage. And God says you don't have to keep doing that to yourself. And God calls you, come to peace. Let go, for God knows that if he has to uncurl our fingers and if he has to push us away, that our hearts are still there. This is not simply between men and women in relationships of marriage, this is any relationship. God stands outside and says, why are you bound there? And we cry, for we don't know how to untangle our hearts. How do I let go of needing that affirmation from a dad? How do I let go 
of needing the love of a brother? How do I let go of wanting one time for the cheater to think I'm beautiful? How do we let go? God says, I don't know, but we can do it together. And he calls us to peace. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God, listen to this, to which you were called. Let the peace of God to which you were called, let it rule in your heart and be thankful. And be thankful. Don't miss what you have and what you might have. Don't miss the beauty of resurrection, grieving too long at this death. Don't miss what you have, grieving what you don't. If it is possible, and as much as depends on you, live at peace. But when it is not possible, know that you can look yourself in the eye and hear God standing. And we've all had the family members that have come, all, come into our lives and said, are you crazy? That's why every time you ever come to me, the fifth time, the eighth time you come to me, still trying to make that failed relationship work, I will never shame you. Love has no reasons except its own. No one has the right to come in and tell you how you ought to feel or when you ought to give up or how you ought to let go, and yet that's what friends do because we don't like to see one another hurt. But God stands, Scott, at the outskirts, at the boundaries of our will, Karen, and he says, when you're ready, I'm calling you to peace. I'm calling you to quit crucifying yourself. I'm calling you to quit destroying yourself. I'm calling you to quit subjecting yourself. I'm calling you to peace, and I'm calling you to be thankful. Some relationships are not going to work and God compensates us, not with other relationships, but with peace. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace. The last thing that I want to say about relationships that Scripture says profoundly, and we have to remember in this Lenten journey, is that all of our dyings and all of our death, all of our closings, all of our endings are not the last say. Our Lenten journey does not terminate in a cross. Our Lenten journey terminates in a resurrection, and not even there, for the resurrection opens up new vistas that are inexhaustible. I want to say this about the relationships that we have lost in our life, the relationships that we have closed, many of us ignobly, poorly, stewarding those moments in the poorest of ways. Sometimes people grow while they're apart. There are times that relationships are toxic, that relationships face terminal exposure and have to end. But even though a relationship dies, it does not necessarily mean that the two people have. Even though a relationship has come to an end now, it does not mean that that relationship is finished forever. People have a chance often when the relationship is untangled to find that the relationship was more toxic perhaps than the sum of the parts, than the people themselves. And sometimes it's true that people grow while they're apart and they create the possibility of a restoration. Some of those restorations will not happen on this side. Some of those relationships will only be restored on the other side. And as one of my favorite theologians, Nick Walterstorff said, heaven for all that it will be, Ben, must be that place where we will ultimately fall on one another's shoulders and we will say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Words that we could never form here, words that could never be resolved here, relationships that could never be fixed here. Heaven must be that place where we fall on one another's shoulders and say, I'm sorry. Where dads look in the daughter's eyes and say, you're beautiful. Where brothers look at one another and say, I'm proud for you. Where divorcees stand in the face of glory 
and say, enough pain already. You were good. You were good. Scripture is full of the stories of those like the Apostle Paul who looked at a young man, John Mark, to his traveling companion, Barnabas. He told him, before we travel again, I just want you to know I'm not taking him anywhere. And Barnabas so believed in John Mark that Barnabas chose to go another direction. And Paul went off on what we know as the second missionary journey and the churches in Corinth, Thessalonica, and Philippi were established. And later, when Paul was a dying man, years later, 2 Timothy 4.11, he told those that he was writing to, when you come to visit me, bring John Mark with you. Bring him to this prison cell. I want to tell him face to face what I'm telling you now. He's profitable. I don't know what resolve John Mark had come to in his own heart. But I remember, I remember the day a guy named L.H. Hardwick stood up here on this platform for the first time, Barbara, and said, I'm glad to be here. The Bible is full of the stories of Jacob and Esau, 20 years of estrangement, and when Jacob goes to meet Esau, Esau, Jacob thinks, will kill him, but instead Esau falls on him, forgiving him for the treachery and betrayal, and Jacob pushes back and said, your face is the face of God to me. The Bible tells the stories again and again of how people, while apart from one another, instead of seething in their bitterness, open their hearts and their pain to God, and God does the work on both ends. I'll close with this one. I don't know that there's another story in Scripture filled with the pathos for me more than this one. But the story goes that they lowered him down in a pit, and I have an older brother that I love dearly, and I cannot even begin to frame this. They lowered him down in the pit, he stood at the bottom of that pit and he said, fellas, <laughs> let me up. You're joking, right? And then he heard the whispered tones. He heard the discussions of his 10 older brothers describing how they could most easily kill him. Betrayal. And there at the bottom of that well, he muddied the base of that place with his own tears until finally the saddest of relief was given and one of his brothers said, there's no sense in wasting him. Slave traders come through here all the time. We could sell him and get money for him. And at the bottom of that well, he screams, no, no. You can have the coat of any color. I'll pay you whatever. Please, brothers. A rope is dropped down. He ties himself to that rope with great misgiving for maybe it's just better to stay here. Pulled up by those who would tear him down. Wrapped with the same rope that drew him out of the well, tied up. He's put in the back of a Midianite slave trader's wagon. And he sticks his arms through, hoping that surely the April Fool's joke is going to be up now. And he screams with tears, almost half crazy, Guys! Guys! Brothers! And into the distance he watches until his eyes can't see through the prism of tears as they divide up amongst 10, 20 pieces of silver. And he realizes, all those years I thought they loved me. And now I know that I was a commodity. They were using me. 
and the net effect is I'm worth no more than two pieces of silver to each of them. Kill me now. But the relief of death doesn't come. And our brothers and sisters who have struggled with the gravest of despair and depression have proven to us that there is some pain worse than physical death. And in the slavery he sold, and even there he's betrayed, trying to do his best, trying to make the most of a situation. Every night he dreams of a father who misses him. Every night he dreams of a younger son, a mother. Every night he wakes up in a cold sweat thinking, if I ever get my hands on those brothers. And he collapses in the wet blankets of his nightmares. And even in that place he's betrayed, And in a cold, dark prison where he barely has subsistence to survive, he lays in that cot and he screams out at a depth deeper than Freud or Young knew. He screams out, Reuben! And he wakes himself and his heart's pounding. And he goes back to sleep, grinding his teeth on the name Judah who would be the progenitor of Jesus, grinding his teeth, Judah, if I ever get my hands on you. And finally, after years of it, he rolls over in that sweat and he prays, oh God, help me. There's a prison greater than iron bars. There's a prison greater than prison. Oh God, help me. Bitterness is killing me. Hatred is consuming me. Help me. And God begins to gently do a work inside of his soul that ultimately is so full and so free that by grace he's lifted out of that place and he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And his life is good now, but he still dreams. Without the bitterness of the former nightmares, he still dreams, J.D., of an old man and a woman that he longs to see. He dreams that God has begun the process of healing his heart, and this process is three steps forward and two steps backward. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens little by little until finally they brought a baby, placed it in his hands that his wife had born, and he lifted that baby, and he said, call him Manasseh. Call him forgetting, for the Lord has made me forget all the sorrows of my father's house. The Lord has done a work in me of divine forgetting, which is not the erasure of memory. It is the ability to remember the event without feeling the sting of bitterness. It's the ability to dream the dream and cry the tears without the grinding of teeth and the measuring of what I will say to them one day. Call him Manasseh, for the Lord has made me forget the sorrow. And then a famine in the land through great irony and providence brings those 10 brothers down, down, down to Egypt. And there he sits behind the veneer of all of Pharaoh's robes. And little do they know that this was the boy that they had sold for two pieces of silver each some 20 years before. And when he sees them, the Bible said, lest the mascara of Pharaoh run, he removes himself from the room the emotion is too much, and he drapes himself across the royal throne, and he cries. And he remembers the nights of bitterness, and he searches his heart, but he can't find the words that he had so wanted to say. But he goes back into that place, and he puts them through a series of events, sending them back and forth, leaving a brother at a time trapping them, tricking them, back and forth they go. And everybody that reads the story thinks, boy, here's a bitter guy that's putting it to them. No, brothers and sisters, no. He set them up for the final moment when he looked into their eyes and said, I will do this for you. I will save your people. And his eyes went down the line, for there are not 10 there, there are 11. And he looks at the youngest boy, the son of his mother Rachel, the apple of his father's eye, the inheritor of the coat of many colors, he looks at him 
And he turns to the older brothers and says, leave him here. You may never see him again. Leave the boy here. And brothers that years before dispensed with a younger brother for two pieces of silver in their pocket. They look at Benjamin and behind his garb he watches them look at the younger brother waiting on them because people are fixed in our mind where we left off with them, aren't they? Waiting on them to say, okay, great. He doesn't mean anything to us anyway because that's what these guys do with younger brothers, right? But Reuben steps forward. The one who had led the charge of Joseph's demise, Reuben steps forward and he raises his hand and he says, I can't do that. And one by one, Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Gideon, Levi, they step forward. Simeon, they step forward. And to a man, those strong men that once held his life in their hand with their hats in their hand, fumbling humbly with the brims, they say, we can't do that. And he says, I said, leave him. And Benjamin there, prone and vulnerable, hears his older brother say, we got an old dad. And they look at one another and they say, who lost a beloved son once? And it wasn't his fault. Ah, oh, we fixed them where we last saw them. But this is what Joseph wanted to know. That the God who had been working on his heart in a prison cell was also the God of these betrayers. And somewhere up in Canaan, he had been working on them. He wasn't the only one waking up in the sweat of pain. Night after night, there were boys who were waking up with their conscience breaking under the weight of God's conviction, remembering the screams of a little brother, thinking to themselves, I'd give my arms up to my shoulder to go back and do it again. That's what you don't know about the person that hurts you. God's working in their life too. Until finally, Judah says, keep us all but don't take another one of our dad's beloved boys. Don't take a son of Rachel. And the Bible says that when Joseph saw that these men's hearts were truly changed, no more bullets were fired at their feet, the Bible said he screamed and said, everybody out. And he dropped to his knees and took off the garments and said, it's me. It's Joseph. And the Bible said they fell and they embraced him and they wept. And a relationship that had to die and lives that could have never been corrected while together. The Lenten journey reminds us that in the seed of death is the germinating seeds of life. And if it is possible, and as much as depends on us, live at peace. But when you can't hear God call you out to a peace in your own heart and know as that one heads off on their betraying trail that God loves Judas's and Reuben's too. And he will follow them down their path and I cannot begin to tell you how one of the great joys of my pastorate is to see again and again and again people in their 60s and 70s. Jerry, I know it's your hope, and 80s. People come around and losses of their 20s and 30s and 40s. And finally, after decades, when you've given up all hope, the phone call comes. 
and the full resolve will never be heard here, but the phone call comes from that brother. I've got cancer, he says. They tell me I don't have long, and I don't know what to say. But I know I need to say something to you. And after decades of silence, brothers and sisters come back together. And sometimes even here, death comes with no gracious redemption. But if the resurrection tells me anything, it tells me we are going to a place where every stone will be rolled away and we will ultimately fall on one another's shoulders and we will say, you are good. And I need you. I needed you and didn't know it. You were beautiful and I couldn't say it. Paul's closing out his life and at the end of his last letter, he says, and I got one more piece of business to do beyond reaching the world and writing the epistles. I need you to bring John Mark a young man that I crushed many years before, a young man that I drove to the, plain, to the place of deeming himself unprofitable, a young man that I looked at in the hubris of my apostolic ministry and said, you're no good and I can't use you. And an old man, Paul, says, somewhere in the midst of all of this that I'm doing, before I die, I gotta look a young man in the eye who's now a middle-aged man, and I need to tell him, I missed it. The old apostle Paul missed it. You're a good man. You're a good man. I was wrong. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace. But until then, Longing mother, hurting brother, betrayed friend. Until then, find peace, the only place it can truly be found, down deep inside from the voice that calls you beloved. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this Lenten season when we journey with you hastening not too quickly past our deaths, hastening not too quickly past these hurts, these little deaths, these sub-deaths that assail us. On this day, Lord, as we talk about relationships, as our hearts feel like they're going to break in two and we can barely breathe, thinking about that grandchild we've never seen, that daughter that we miss so dearly, that father we haven't spoken to, that brother who died before the last good words could be said. In this world where we groan, Lord, we lift our voices and we celebrate that one day mortality will be swallowed up in life. But until that day, sweet Christ, swallow us with the peace of God that passes understanding. Let us hear your voice. Take the place of the voices that we long to hear, that we would pay to hear, that we think so deeply that we need to hear. May your voice be that voice who calls us beloved. And may we quit looking for that love in all the wrong places looking for answers in too many faces. Call us to peace, Lord, now in our human relationships that we might be better with one another. We pray these things today, thanking you for the hope of the resurrection. Until that day, Lord, go with us. Carry us from here. We pray all of this in the name of the betrayed one, in the name of of the forgiving one in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. Now be good to one another in Jesus' name. Go in God's grace.